All right, assalamu alaikum, bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome to another amazing session. Um, Surah Al-Imran, I'm gonna keep my introduction really short because I'm so excited just to get back into it. I think just the, the first session was enough to blow so many of our minds and I think we just you know wanna get right back to it. But the very quick thing I just wanted to remind people of, um, it's December, end of the year. If you need a tax write-off, it's a good time to think about your donations. And I want to remind you about adopt a sura because actually I'm really excited. I think we have about um, almost 60 suras. It's 59 suras that have been adopted out of the 114. We have some really, really good ones. Um, and so please definitely um, check it out. If you go to our website, there's um, a link under Project Illumin called adopt a sura and it lists all the ones that have been um, adopted, but I was looking at what's left and there are some really amazing ones that we've covered here that are super special so um if you uh yeah if you want to extra blessings and get a tax write-off too that uh, check it out um <clears throat> also i know that this is a difficult time um for converts with the holidays coming up people are going home going back to families um so i just wanted to give a shout out and i i know like how difficult it is um and you know, I know sometimes people have questions about whether it's okay to, you know, say Merry Christmas or, you know, silly things like that. I mean, I think obviously what we've learned here is just to try and be as beautiful and loving as you can. And if you, um, you know, are feeling uncomfortable about anything, then just excuse yourself. But I always let, take these opportunities to just put my best foot forward with my non-Muslim family um, because I feel like sometimes they're, well, my family actually, they're, quite Christian and I always feel like I'm kind of under a um, microscope. It's like, ooh, you know, what is the Muslim going to do? <laughs> and maybe that's just silly. Maybe it's just being a convert. Um, but you know, you, you definitely have so many challenges with family and friends. And I think that it's, um, it's important just not to lose sight of, um, you know, being as beautiful, you know, and um, patient as possible. And if you feel lonely or you feel, um, you know, hurt or, or awkward, um, there's always um, the comfort of amazing books and so it's an opportunity also just to say if you haven't read this book the search for beauty in Islam I would really highly recommend it especially as things are slowing down for the holidays um, if you if you like what we do at Asuli if you like you know the things that um, you know we, we try to talk a lot about you'll find um, so much of it is captured in this book and other books um, like uh, Reasoning with God, The Great Theft. Um, if you go to the searchforbeauty.org website, you'll find a lot of materials. And of course, you know, the Project Illumin Holocaust, it's a great time to catch up if things are slowing down. So there's so much knowledge that you can, you know, um, immerse yourself in um, with this time. And um, I really want to recommend the books because they're, they're out of this world. And um, so there's nothing like, you know, settling down with a nice hot tea and you're favorite comforter. So anyway, but I'm so excited to um, continue on with Surah um, Al-Imran and inshallah, um, thank you for being with us and inshallah, um, looking forward to a great session. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Subhanallah al-Aliyya al-Azim, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Al-Salatu wa-Salam ala Muhammad. خاتم الأنبياء والرسل أجمعين الموسى الرحمة للعالمين وعلى آله وأصحابه ومن اتبعوا إحسانا إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب A quick recap Before we move on
لسورة العمران begins or starts out of course after the reminder the always consistent reminder Allahu la ilaha illa huwa al-hayyul qayyum that the center of everything in existence of all reality of all truth is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who is ever-living, ever-present. Then Surat Al-Umran takes us to a fundamental and basic understanding about the Muhkam and Mutashabih, as we've talked about. And when dealing with the image of the Muhkam and Mutashabih, perhaps a useful allegory that Allah reminds us of in Surah Ibrahim is when Allah talks about a kalima tayyibah and in context of Surah Ibrahim a kalima tayyibah is the word of truth and it is in the Quranic language when you say the word it is the basis for all of existence existence is but a word creation is but a word reality is but a word it is a divine word it is kun fayakun be and so it is but it is a word in material terms, secular terms, it's as if the word is energy, the vibration that constitutes energy. But energy and vibration have a source, and the source is a divine word. It is the intentionality, the will of the divine behind the thing. Without the intentionality of the divine, there is no word and there is no energy, there are no vibrations, there is no existence. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about the kalima tayyibah in Surah Ibrahim, the word, the word of truth, and Allah says that الكلمة الطيبة كالشجرة الطيبة أصلها ثابت وفرعها في السماء So the the word the truthful word is like a tree with its roots and trunk anchored and then the branches reach out to the sky. Well, in many ways, the image of the muhkam and mutashabih are like that. 
and that helps us understand what so many had failed to understand about the Muhkam al Mutashabih. When Allah describes that Al Muhkam Hunna Ummul Kitab, it is like the roots and the trunk. And the Mutashabih are all the contextual and circumstantial and constantly evolving and constantly transforming efforts of human beings to reach out for the heavens, like the branches of a tree that reaches out to the, to the sky. So then Ali Omran anchoring us, it is as if Ali Omran is telling us, alerting us to the reality that in the Surat Ali Imran itself we are going to encounter the phenomena of Al-Muhkam wal Mutashabih. And indeed Ali Imran as it goes on it will talk about the battle of Uhud. And there is so much Mutashabih about the battle of Uhud. I mean if you just delve into the reports about the Battle of Uhud. There, are, there is so much nuance that depends on the historical context. But the foundations that Allah lays out before telling us the lesson about the Battle of Uhud is the trunk and the root. The, the, the very basis that we can never lose sight of. And after alerting us to this, Ali Omran takes us to a critical construct, if you will, a critical image that is of utmost pertinence for understanding the entire surah of Surah Al-Imran. And that Al-Fi'atan, the, the two groups that confront each other in the battlefield. Now, the imagery is two groups confronting in the battlefield. But what Allah is alerting you Two, as we will see in in the way that Al Umran itself progresses, is that it is the confrontation between falsehood, between truth and falsehood, between beauty and ugliness, husn and qubh, the confrontation between al haqq wal batil, the confrontation between what is moral and ethical and what is unethical and immoral and intuitively if you are a believer you know that intuitively if you start out with that with that construct that Surah Ali Umran gives you you will of course want to believe that 
the group that is with Allah represents the truth, the beautiful, the moral, and the group that is on the other side of godlessness instead of godliness represents the immoral, the ugly, the so on. But Al-Amran then tells you, yeah, but it is not so easy because the truth that claims to be on Allah's side must fulfill criteria that it cannot fail. Otherwise, its stand, its claim that it is the representation of all that we described as good is to say the least problematic. And so when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says this is uh, verse 13 there is in this there is a, a, a very sophisticated reference to how deceptive things can be Yeah, most people, most commentators, when they read this verse, they said, So some said that, that the believers saw that the kuffar were twice the numbers. Some said that the believers, God affected the believers, comforted the believers, so they didn't see the kuffar as much stronger than they are. So in other words, they 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 failed to to notice their own weakness but to be quite honest i don't think that this is all premised on the on the this is all premised on that when allah says that this is a reference to the battle of badr but that's quite um uh, that, that there's no basis for that. There's no basis for saying that this is a reference to the Battle of Badr. If we are understanding the Surah thematically, it is a reference to what it is saying. There, the, in life, there is a confrontation between the group that is with Allah and the group that is not with Allah. And the question is, what does each group then represents? And when it says that they see them, mislayhim, who is it that sees them, mislayhim? Well, all commentators said, well, it's talking about, this is al-damir a'id al-muslimin, that the, 
that this it's talking about Muslims seeing them. But again, reread it and reflect on it, and it will come to you. It is talking about the fact of how perceptions itself are so subjective that when you look at the two groups by surface appearance, you can't tell who's on the side of right and who's on the side of wrong. They look identical. It's substance that differentiates. It's an amazing, it, it, amazing way to alerting us to the superficiality of appearance. It's like saying, well, it's not as easy as the matter of who's raising the banner of La ilaha illallah, or who's going around saying takbir, or who go, who's going around wearing turbans, or where, whatever. It's not that simple. That's not what tells us who is with Allah and who is against. Consistently, you'll see that the Quran throughout, consistently, takes you beyond the superficial appearances and says, look again. It's like when Allah tells us to examine the, the, sky, the heavens and says, you know, you, you look once, but look again. Look again. Ref return with your gaze to reflect. Okay, so then, as we said, we start out with, we talked about that there is a muhkam and mutashabih. Well, among the muhkam here, as a premise, is that who do you love? Who do you love? Because as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us, زُيِّنَ لِلنَّاسِ حُبُّ الشَّهَوَاتِ مِنَ النِّسَاءِ So, human beings, their tendency is to love sexual partners or sexual desire, children, property, professions, prestige, power, that's what people love. But as Surah Al-Umran tells us, well, that's not the party that can claim to be fighting or representing the side of the godly in this confrontation. The party that is with Allah is clear about its allegiances and it's clear about its priorities. And it's clear that it's not prestige, it's not the profession, it's not the property, it's not the money, it's not the children, it's not the women, it's not the men. And this is part of Umu Kitab. This is foundational. 
this is where what the branches will grow out of this. But this is at the heart, at the core. So if you find yourself playing the role of Imam, Mullah, Sheikh, Ayatollah, whatever it is, and it is not the rhetoric, it is not the flags, it is not the takbirs, it is in substance. What is your life about? Are you like the Prophet living on the bare minimum and, and as we will see, endlessly forgiving, endlessly detached from this world because that that's a very demanding thing I mean you, you could be among those who as we will see who sit out the battle but there are consequences to that as well okay furthermore Allah alerted us as we saw last halakha that this fi'a, that tuqatil fi sabilillah, that this party that is with Allah, is described as sabirin, wa sadiqin, wa qanitin, wa munfiqin, wa mustaghfirina fil ashar. That they are, they are patient and persevering. They don't give up. That they are truthful. They're not deceitful, or liars, or unreliable or people who cannot be trusted qanitin and we talked about qanit qunut last halaqa wa munfiqin and the the way they deal with their material possessions is verifiable proof of who they are they're constantly spending in Allah's way wa mustaghfirina fil ashar bil ashar and when you look at their life, it is full of quiet, private supplication and prayer. Mustaghfirina bil ashar. Bil ashar it's an image of a person sort of sitting alone late into the night at the crack of dawn supplicating Allah. Even more, the party of God as Allah in the Dina in the Allah tells us in the Dina in the Allah Islam that they, their gaze is turned towards Allah in surrender. The, the, the whole life project is how do I surrender? How do I rely on Allah completely and fully? But then another part of Ummah Kitab, as because all of this is part of the Ummahat, part of the, the, the foundationals, is the role of al-qiyam bil-qist 
that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that شهد الله أنه لا إله إلا هو والملائكة وأولو العلم قائما بالقسط لا إله إلا هو العزيز الحكيم that Allah Allah's self bears witness that our we can't say what Allah is about because that's beyond us. But our understanding of what Allah fundamentally does is qa'iman bilqist. Upholding justice. This anchors everything for us. Because then Allah tells us that that, that thing we talked about that those who kill the prophets, who those who advocate or up, try to uphold justice, those who persecute them cannot be among the party of God. Again, another Ummul Kitab, another anchor from which many branches can grow. Okay. And then, before Allah is going to take us to a major, a major movement within the symphony, where Allah will take us to a very wise lesson about the nature of working for God, Allah reminds us that central you can't get more central than that that in this orienting yourself towards this struggle, it must be very clear in your mind that it is all up to Allah. You do what you do, but it's all up to Allah. And, and as we said, as Al-Umran will later on tell the Prophet, لَيْسَ لَكَ مِنَ الْأَمْرِ شَيْءٍ You have no authority, no, None of the decisions are yours. This is Allah talking to the Prophet. None of the decisions are yours. It is really, it is all up to Allah. And another thing that, that you need, it must be noticed, that this proclamation comes right before Allah says in Kuntum Allah 
فاتبعوني لا is Allah telling us that this claim of I love God is unfounded it is false unless it is premised on Allah Malikul Mulk that unless it is premised on a clear conviction of Allah's role in existence. So do you, do you, to say that you love Allah or to aspire to love Allah but to gripe about what Allah decides or to be unhappy with what Allah decides or to be uh, you know all the different egotistic ego ways that human beings implicitly object to Allah's will which means that they are objecting to the state of affairs because they want things to be different. There is a huge gap, between, there is a huge difference between fighting in Allah's cause and doing your utmost best, but the result is Allah's and Allah's alone. Okay. We get to this point, and Allah then takes us takes us back to the narrative of the prophets, which is always the allegorical narrative for communicating a moral lesson. And an affirmation first of Adam and Noah and Ibrahim, but particularly zeroing in on, on Ali Amran and a set of unfolding events with Ali Umran. So, okay. So, it's called Imra'at Umran, Rabbi inni nazartu laka ma fi batni muharrara fataqabbal minni innaka anta sami'u al-alim. Falamma wadhatha qalat Rabbi inni wadhatuha unsa wallahu a'lam bima wadhat. وليس الذكر كالأنثى وإني سميتها مريم وإني أعيذها بك وذريتها من الشيطان الرجيم فتقبلها ربها بقبول حسن وأنبتها نباتا حسنا وكفلها ذكريا 
كلما دخل عليها زكريا المحراب وجد عندها رزقا قال يا مريم أنا لك هذا قالت هو من عند الله إن الله يرزق من يشاء بغير حساب So it takes us to drawing out a, 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 like a like a like a like a, a scene a picture right that and the the picture it it sets forth for us is Imra'at Imran Imran's wife Hannah her name is Hannah the mother of Maryam right and and of course the Hannah this is Isa's uh, 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 grandmother um, And so Amran himself is not a prophet. At least we're not told that Amran was a prophet. And according to the Bible, he is not a prophet. Anyway. So Amran and Hannah are advanced in age and or older reports and she longs to give the temple a dedicated, committed servant. And the practice past then, as I think we've mentioned before, is that you could commit your child to the service of the temple and the child effectively is raised on the basis of someone who is going to be among the sage, sages bearing the responsibility of serving the temple and serving God. And Khadim al-Rabb, the, the uh, and Maryam, by the way, Maryam, the, the name Maryam itself uh, in Aramaic means Khadim al-Rabb, or the, the servant of the Father, the servant of God, the Father. Okay. So, and she but she is surprised that what she gives birth to is a woman. And she recognizes that this is a completely different ballgame because women cannot become rabbis. Women cannot be dedicated servants in the same way that men are. But nevertheless, Hannah 
and her husband, at least Amran, um, uh, in, in, in uh, commit their daughter as a sage. And this, we've talked about this before in Surah Maryam, all the unusualness about this and all that, the complications that this entails. And Imran, while his wife is pregnant in Maryam, dies. So the husband actually dies before Maryam is born. And according to the social practices and Jewish law, actually, back then, because these, uh, this family is a descendant of not Moses, not from the Moses line of prophets, but his brother Aaron, um, Ahu Musa, Musa's brother, they have a special status and the family gets together and talks about, well, now that Maryam is an orphan, who's going to be responsible for, uh, for the care of this orphan? Who's going to become the primary responsibility is a financial responsibility. And as is consistent with Jewish law at the time, they all, you know, put arrows in a, in a thing and they pull arrows and Zechariah. Zechariah is married to Maryam's sister. And Zechariah pulls the arrow that says he will be the one that is responsible for taking care of Maryam, at least financially. But in this dynamic, Ali Omran presents us with another image. Zachariah himself and his wife, Maryam's sister, uh, um, sorry, um, uh, Hannah's sister, not Maryam's sister. The, he's married to Maryam's mother's sister, right? So uh, he's married to Maryam's aunt, right? Okay. So they themselves, they're a very pious couple, advanced in age, and they are absolutely surprised to learn that Zachariah and his wife, at this advanced age, becomes pregnant with John, known as John the Baptist in the Bible. And in the Quran, John is called Yahya. Remember that Yahya is Nabi and Wasayyidan Wahasura 
and we'll talk in a second about this. So, and in the Bible, John is called Yohanna or Hanna. Both Yahya and Hanna or Yohanna, Hanna, Yohanna, Yahya were all anglicized into John. But it is very interesting that, and I'll comment about why, why it's interesting, but this, this sort of details, variances in details are rather interesting. So, Yahya, John, is the, is, will be the cousin of Jesus from the mother's side, a maternal cousin, right? And now, this imagery in Ali Amran, the way that the Quran portrays it, it's powerful in the emotional constructs it set out. You can practically feel from the language of the Quran, the, the joy and the loneliness and the anxiety of this couple as they become as they become pregnant in Maryam, and then Maryam is born an orphan without a father and you can literally just feel that that Zachariah and his wife are pious and loving people and that nevertheless they insist on this path that Maryam will be a servant in the temple or dedicated to serving the temple and serving God. And then Zechariah and Maryam's aunt, when they become pregnant in John, the joy, the happiness that they're going to have a child this late. And here's the thing Maryam is extremely pious. Jesus is extremely pious, or eventually Maryam bears, becomes pregnant with Jesus, and John is extremely pious. To just jump ahead a little bit, they're also not well off. So, Zachariah constantly finds Maryam worshipping in the mihrab. Where is Maryam? She's worshipping. And when Zachariah comes, he finds that there's food. Now, Islamic sources say, taken from a lot of Christian mythology, 
that the food found, it was food that was miraculously appeared before Maryam. And I don't think there's, there's any indication in the Quran or in the Sunnah that we need to believe that this food miraculously, it's not that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, exclude miracles. If Allah wanted to do a miracle, it's fine. But I'm talking about the text of the Quran and the Hadith that when she tells the Kariya, this is from this is what Allah has said, meaning that although Miriam, one would have anticipated a great deal of hostility and persecution towards her as a woman in the temple. In fact, what happens is people's hearts soften towards her and they bring her food gifts. And it's actually a, 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 a more uh, a resounding lesson that anything that Maria receives, she attributes the goodness of fadl to lillah, that it comes from Allah. I mean, human beings might have, might have brought it, but it's Allah that drives human beings to do what is good or inspires human beings to do what is good. Okay. Now, at this point, we pause and say, okay, wait. We know that Ali Amran is going to take us to the Battle of Uhud. We know that Ali Amran told us something about Umm Kitab and the Mutashabihat. We know Ali Amran told us something about Hubbullah, loving God. So why is Ali Amran, before doing, or in the context of doing all of that, taking us to the story about Zachariah and his wife, the birth of Maryam, the birth of Jesus, the birth of John. And then these were people battling on Allah's side, battling against the forces of Kufr, without ever stepping in a battlefield. These were a very different type of soldiers. These were also people deeply anchored in Allah's love. Notice, Al-Amran, mother of Maryam, Maryam herself, the mother of John, Zachariah, none of them loved material things, property and prestige and professions. Their life was centered around loving Allah. But there's even more. And it dawns on you, or it comes to you, when you 
realize what happens. So, Maryam is born, she is obviously ahead of her age because according to biblical sources, when she becomes pregnant with Jesus, she's 13 years old and gives birth to Jesus. So she's quite young. And, but Maryam is not going to live a very long life. She, does, she doesn't live long after Jesus. We know what's going to happen to Jesus. And we know what's going to happen to John, to Yahya. What happens to John, to Yahya, is he's going to be executed. What happens to Jesus, and we'll talk about this in, 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 in a second, as I, but I've talked about it before, whether Jesus is, Rafa'ahullah means that Jesus got, was killed, and then, but Allah raised raised him in a, a in in a in a way that is beyond our realm of reality so i mean you could you could kill the body but the the spirit is no longer there and you know that's quite possible or that as other narratives say that jesus said who will take my place and one of the disciples of jesus volunteered and then as a miracle and i'll elaborate upon it as a miracle god made this person look exactly like jesus the volunteer and that person was crucified but it, it it's immaterial but for all practical purposes if you're living at the time of jesus Maryam's father dies before she's born Maryam herself will not outlive her son very long. Jesus doesn't live very long. John is clearly executed. This looks like a total and complete loss. It looks like a total and complete defeat. But what Ali Amran will tell us that in fact in this defeat was the victory. And that's precisely why this is laid as a foundation for the Battle of Ahud. You don't know this, but Allah Malikul Mulk, Allah who is the, the, the one and only real king, is the one who gives victory or defeat to whomever. You don't know what is a victory and what is a defeat. You think you know. And that is precisely why the story of Zechariah is right there in the heart of Al-Umran. Now, you can go search the Tafsir for this all you want. You won't find it. But Allah is my witness. That's the truth about Surah Al-Umran. There are interesting things in the context here 
because فتقبلها ربها بقبول حسن وانبتها نباتا حسنا وكفلها زكريا كلما دخل عليها زكريا المحراب وجد عندها رزقا قال يا مريم انى لك هذا قالت هو من عند الله ان الله يرزق من يشاء بغير حساب this is 37 when زكريا sees مريم's piety and her commitment and dedication to Allah and then he prays to Allah to have a child like Maryam the 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 sort of the the, the girl that was a surprise and a, and a, a difficulty forever becomes an inspiration not just for Zakaria but for humanity which is mind-blowing astounding right and Allah then, then Zakaria prays and Allah says, answers this prayer and says, well, I'm going to give you John. Now, can, if, if these parents would have known that John, while very young, in his 20s, is going to be executed and crucified, John's mother was alive when John is crucified and executed how did she feel could she have imagined what the the execution of john the baptist is going to mean for humanity or the whole spectacle of the execution of jesus is going to mean for the trajectory of humanity in history Things that we cannot overlook are interesting variances between the Quran and the Bible. So, one, you notice that in the Quran, Zakaria says, Qala aya. This is 41. وَاذْكُرْ رَبَّكَ كَثِيرًا وَسَبِّحْ وَسَبِّحْ بِالْعَشِيِّ وَالْإِبْكَارِ So, Zakaria says, you know, what can I do to express my gratitude? And Allah inspires to Zakaria that for three days, don't talk to human beings, but remain in a state of tasbih. In the Bible, interestingly, you get a very different story. In Luke, it says, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, 
you will be mute and not be able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their own time so in the Quran three days of tasbih in the Bible God it sounds like this is it, God makes Zachariah mute until the birth of John as a punishment because Zachariah is doubted and this is consistent by the way with the way that the generally the Bible is towards a lot of and it said carry over from from the Old Testament that you know it's there is a constant theme of God punishing uh, rather than human beings proving their commitment to God through their own volunteering. So, those again, for, for you know, all the Islamophobic garbage about, you know, how the... These vari variations are more important than similarities. But there is another rather astounding variation so we, we know in the Quran that Maryam is, she's very young, by our standards in this day and age, she's a child. By their standards, 13 years old was a grown up. And she's not married, she becomes pregnant in Jesus, and that's the miracle, the virgin birth. But in Matthew, it says, so, this is not, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. This is Matthew, chapter 1, verse 18. After his mother, Mary, was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take you, Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his son, call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So in Matthew, Mary was married. She was married to a man called Joseph. And according to Matthew, for whatever reason, Joseph and Mary didn't consummate the marriage. But Mary got pregnant with Jesus before the marriage is consummated. Which, of course, I mean, you find this ignored all the time. But, and, then, and this is the contradiction that you find in the Bible is this whole thing was, was Mary, and if she was married, why wasn't, and how could it be that the marriage was not consummated? In the Quran, it's very clear. She's not married. 
and the virgin birth takes place. These Muslims that get affected by Islamophobia, and you know, one of the big Islamophobic points is, oh, you know, Muslim, the Quran, the Quran is just copied from the Bible. And that is precisely why then Allah says, um, this is precisely why Allah says, ذَلِكَ مِنْ أَنْبَاءِ الْغَيْبِ نُوحِيهِ إِلَيْكُ وَمَا كُنْتَ لَدَيْهِمْ إِذْ يُلْقُونَ أَقْلَامَهُمْ أَيُّهُمْ يَكْفَلُ مَرْيَمُ وَمَا كُنْتَ لَدَيْهِمْ إِذْ يَخْتَصِمُونَ This is 44. You were not there. And Allah is telling you things that only Allah could have known. And this is... This is if if just Muslims if Muslims understood the the author of the Quran was clearly present, so present that corrects minor details in the Bible, not not that whether Mary was married or not is a minor detail, but if the Quran was copied from the Bible, a lot of the mistakes that you, and contradictions that you find in the Bible would be in the Quran. None of them are. So, it just, it's, it's remarkable. I mean, it just, it, it, these, these points of coming in and, and, and saying no, Zacharias didn't doubt his God and was punished by becoming mute. The Gerea volunteered to do dhikr for three days and not talk to human beings. Or completely ignoring the whole thing about, oh, Mary was married, but the marriage was somehow not consummated. You know, it's like, well, everyone knows that marriages at that time was, were major social events and you consummated the first night because among the procedures of marriage in the first night is a demonstration of blood where you know virginal blood and that's how you prove that you married the virgin which would be displayed this is an old old uh, near eastern uh, custom that in some rural area still survives where you know the 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 groom throws out the or sh demonstrates or shows the proof of blood as proof of virginity okay <coughs> and, and notice just the 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 remarkable image of, of Maryam and the way that Allah talks about Maryam in the Quran, we saw this in Surah Maryam, but again in Ali Amran, says, Ya Maryamu, 
اقنطي لربك واسجدي واركعي مع الراكعين the same reference to قنوط and Allah's relationship with Miriam it is not about declarations of love it is about a woman who lives the reality of Qunut. Here, in the imagery, it's as if her entire being is one of Rukua and Sujud, one of a, a, a what did I say, you know, um, a passionate surrender to Allah. Okay. Now, of course, just notice that as is consistent with the way that the Quran always talks about uh, when Allah educates someone. وَيُعَلِّمُهُ الْكِتَابَ وَالْحِكْمَةَ وَالْتَوْرَاتَ وَالْإِنْجِيلِ that, that is not just that Allah teaches Jesus التَّوْرَاتَ وَالْإِنْجِيلِ uh, or, but the, the constant focus on الْحِكْمَةَ which we've talked about and the impact of that on the Islamic civilization. That the idea that wisdom goes hand in hand with an education in the in the Kutub al-Samawiyya. Um, which obviously I mean it, the impact on the Islamic civilization, especially in, in the in the spring of the Islamic civilization, the Islamic civilization was quite young, was was quite powerful. Um, obviously far, far more powerful than it is with us today. And the other thing to note is in 49 um, when there is a description of the performances of Jesus. أَخْلُقُ لَكُمْ مِنَ الطِّينِ كَهَيْئَةِ الطَّيْرِ فَأَنْفُخُ فِيهِ فَيَكُونُ طَيْرًا بِإِذْنِ اللَّهِ وَأُبْرِئُ الْأَكْمَةِ وَالْأَبْرَثِ وَأُحْيِي الْمَوْتَى بِإِذْنِ اللَّهِ and so on. That, giving life to a bird or healing diseases or bringing the dead to life the um, Muhammad Asad, in his um, translation and tafsir, understands all of these allegorically. As far as I know, he's he's the only one that I've read who understood these miracles uh, in, in an allegorical way. So he, I forget exactly how he puts it, but that the. Uh, He doesn't understand these as, as 
miracles of actually bringing the dead to life, but, but more like uh, giving face to someone. You can refer to Muhammad Asad, his commentary on 49, if you're interested. I don't have, you know, I, I don't um, necessarily share the same impetus to understand these things allegorical. Um, you know, to, to me, it, it's um, in the age of miracles. Miracles were a, a fact of life. That, that's what the way that Allah often tried to persuade um, people of that day and age. And, and miracles, as we said before, I mean, they're, they, they're effective with those who witness them. But they lose their power and their momentum um, beyond, you know, beyond that. Uh, the only thing is that, of course, I, you know, there are, among Muslim commentators, they said, that in, in seeing Jesus perform these miracles, it is not surprising that there were, considering the day and age, that there are those who then deified Jesus. And that, because if, you're not going to deify Jesus. You have to pay close attention to what he says. And interestingly, what he says actually survives in the Bible that we have today. That he, you know, he's constantly saying that this is my father who gives me the power to do this. I am doing this to please my father. I'm doing this by the authority of my father. And then you have to actually pay attention to the fact that he's attributing all the power to his father rather than to himself. If you're not paying attention to the words, then it becomes quite possible to say, well, no, it must be that you yourself, you, you have your partly deity or you're completely a deity, uh, and so on, so forth. Okay, yeah, I'm just making sure I'm not forgetting anything. Um, On on forty eight, where Alimu Kitaba and Hikma or Taurat or Injil, Muslim scholars did every time that you found Al Hikma mentioned, they've written about what that or explored what that could mean, and. Among the, of course, you know, and then they, they often talk about that al-hikmah is, as we said before, the knowledge of what is necessary to fulfill the, either to fulfill hukuk al-abad, to fulfill the rights of people, or to fulfill masalih al-abad, to fulfill what is good for people, and so on and so forth. Ibn Abbas says that the mention of al-hikmah means al-hikmah means tahzeeb al-akhlaq 
which would translate to good morals or proper morals, proper ethics, something very close to what we, what in this day and age people mean when they talk about virtue ethics. Um, and there is a lot written about that. It's worth flagging, but I don't, I'm not going to pause at it because we've talked about it. Um, okay. Um, the other thing that I probably should flag is 52. Those who are um, often referred to as the disciples of Jesus, and then who um, ultimately be becomes the writers of the Testament. فَلَمَّا أَحَسَّ عَيْسَ مِنْهُمْ الْكُفْرَ قَالَ مَنْ أَنْصَارِيَ لَلَّهِ قَالَ الْحُوَارِيُونَ And so he, in the Qur'an they're, they're referred to as Hawari. And Hawari is the same word like um, the, from which um, it's of, of the same root word uh, that is used for instance in Hur al-Ain which we've talked about in Jannah. Hawari is as-Safwa wal Khulasa are the the closest thing or the most pure and and intimate thing to a person that's what is normally referred to as Hawari or Hawari in Aramaic is a Nasr or in Aramaic it's the person who gives you support and victory um, so this Jesus is met with an incredible amount of opposition. His success is extremely limited in his lifetime because his success is limited to his Ansar, to the Hawari, who are a handful of people. And they are As in 53 says that they are commit they commit to bearing witness to the prophecy of Jesus and as the Quran itself makes clear that Jesus was sent to Bani Israel to the Israelites and that the coming of Jesus as a Messiah was foretold in, in the Bible, and that's, you know, a big subject. Anyway, so ultimately, get to, we get to then 54 and 55. إِسْقَالَ اللَّهُ يَا عِيسَى إِنِّي مُتْوَفِّكَ وَرَافِعُكَ إلي ومطهرك من الذين كفروا وجعل الذين اتبعوك فوق الذين كفروا إلى يوم القيامة 
ثم إلي مرجعكم فأحكم بينكم فيما كنتم فيه تختلفون. So Allah is is clear from from fifty five that Allah then is tells Jesus that I will mutafika I will how do you translate it? It's not you know I will cause your death or I will. Yeah, I, I I don't want to say kill you because it's not kill you, but it's cause your death. You know, and I will then raise you. This is what um, generated some of the debate that a lot of modern Muslims are rarely aware of about that the Quran says Jesus dies and then raised. So some like Ibn Abbas said that Jesus asks for volunteers among his disciples and one of his disciples volunteers to take Jesus' place um, in the trial and execution that they knew is about to happen. And that God made that disciple look like a replica of Jesus. A minority view that did not survive in the Islamic tradition um, denied this entire narrative because this narrative by Ibn Abbas is not um, is not uh, cumulative and it's not you know of the highest authenticity and there are some say that Ibn Abbas didn't ever say this and you know there's a, there's a lot about this but ultimately those who said no in fact Jesus was did die, but the, the it's like it's like when martyrs um, they're not truly dead, or that's what Allah tells us about them, and that similarly, you think you killed Jesus, you killed the body, but the soul and what Jesus experienced is something completely different. Of course, you know, in, in modern Islam, if you go and tell any Muslim this, they, they you know, they, they were completely shocked. What are you talking about? But it's, it's, it was part of the, the tradition that had not um, the, the prevalent narrative or the narrative that gained the most ground and the most momentum for a variety of reasons was the narrative that either they grabbed a wrong person uh, who happened to look like Jesus or the the Ibn Abbas type of narrative that God made one of the disciples look like Jesus but it, it is interesting that there are in the early Islamic tradition some who had some serious um, problems in terms of the justice of that narrative you know would it be fair for, and, and we don't have another prophet where th this happens with, 
where um, someone would suffer for Jesus and why God allowed that. And um, there I say, because, uh, you know, that it was particularly among the Mu'tazili school that raised these, the, the most vehement objections to the idea that someone else would have suffered uh, the, the gruesome way that the Romans performed their executions. Okay. Now, note the continuation of 55. وَجَاعِلُوا الَّذِينَ اتَّبَعُوكَ فَوْقَ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا إِلَى يَوْمِ الْقِيَامَةِ That those who will, those who follow you will be folk. Now, folk could mean higher in moral worth, could also mean victorious. So those who deny you will be lower than those who follow you. Now, of course, you get a lot of discussions in the Islamic tradition about what precisely this means. Does it mean that, you know, those who truly follow Jesus in the sense that those who truly follow Jesus as a prophet, so then it must be understood as a matter of moral worth, uh, or does it mean those who follow Jesus in, in any form? In other words, that in the future it becomes those who praise and honor the name of Jesus, even if uh, in an exaggerated form deifying Jesus, are far more prevalent than those who had denied Jesus. So you get into these discussions in the Islamic tradition, but the point in this verse, in my opinion, is precisely the theme of Ali Omran, that you go from this very somber, nearly lonely, lonely vision of a very humble family that experiences miraculous events that seem very short-lived and seem extremely traumatic at the moment they take place. But who could have imagined Definitely, the, the, the people who executed Jesus and the, the people who executed John couldn't have imagined what that, these little events taking place in the margins of the Roman Empire in this city of Jerusalem could have meant for the world. And I think, in my view, this is precisely what the Qur'an is alluding to.
and this is underscored in 58. So Allah emphasizes, look, this is the dhikr al-hakim. This is the, the, the book of wisdom inviting you to reflect upon this wisdom. And this is all setting the stage to talk about Uhud. But then affirming the, the anchoring point that Isa was just like Adam. The fact that he was born without a father is in the very fair, in the, in the, in the same way that Allah created the first human being without a father or mother. Allah created Isa without a father. It's, 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 it is not a thing that should have caused the amount of deviance that it has caused. Okay. Now, we come to 61 because of its... Um, this, if you read 61, the first 60, uh, let, let's first uh, do um, um, 60, no, let, let's, let's backtrack to 67. Oh, sorry, what, what, what am I saying? I'm getting uh, tired. So, okay. فَمَنْ حَجَّكَ فِيهِ مِنْ بَعْدِ مَا جَاءَكَ مِنَ الْعِلْمِ فَقُلْ تَعَالَ نَدْعُ أَبْنَاءَنَا وَأَبْنَاءُكُمْ وَنِسَاءَنَا وَنِسَاءُكُمْ وَأَنفُسَنَا وَأَنفُسَكُمْ ثُمَّ نَبْتَهِلْ فَنَجْعَلْ لَعْنَةَ اللَّهِ عَلَى الْكَاذِبِينَ This is something known as Mubahala. And Mubahala was a, a dreaded procedure in um, even goes back to pre-Islamic Arabia because we, we have reports of al-mubahala even among the, the people of Mecca. But the narratives that in the Islamic tradition there's a, a scholar called al-Allama al-Duwani and al-Duwani wrote a, a treatise on this issue on the, the issue of Mubahala. And most of the tafasir say that this ayah refers to Wafd Najran, to the delegation from Najran that we talked about. And that the delegation from Najran comes to the, the Prophet and they listen to what he says about Isa and they ultimately refuse what the prophet is saying and say no we you know we insist that Isa was the son of God and a deity and that then the prophet والسلام, challenged them to mubahala that the prophet then said well if you really believe this, then and Mubala is a form of a, a swearing, uh, a showdown by swearing. So 
you challenge a person to say, okay, I'm willing to swear that I am saying the absolute truth. And if I am not, I am taking this oath, may Allah smite me or curse me and whoever are joined in this oath. And you then the other person either accepts the challenge and makes the same oath and risks incurring God's wrath or declines to do so if they're not saying the truth. And Abdulwani writes in great detail in this treatise about when you can do mubahala, what issues you can do mubahala on, um, what issues you cannot do mubahala, and, and so on. The, interestingly, although the, you have these narratives that say that the Prophet then invited Wafd Najran to a challenge of Mubahala and said, okay, well, I'm willing to take an oath that I'm saying the truth, and if I'm not saying the truth to me, Allah curse me and curse my family, that then Wafd Najran declined to you accept the Mubahala. They said, well, we're, we're not going to take this oath. And uh, they went away. I have, I've looked into the chains of transmission of the reports on the Prophet challenging Dwarf Nishran to Mubahala. And I've looked at what various scholars have said about this. And I agree with the scholars that have raised serious doubts that this ever took place. I mean, if you, the, the, the Mahtutu to Diwan or the treatise of the Diwani, as far as I know, is still a manuscript. But even if you don't have access to the treatise of the Diwani, you can read what Razi writes about this, you can read what Mataridi writes about this. Um, and they, they get into some of the prolonged discussions about the authenticity of um, the, this tradition and, or, or not, at least they, they go over the main points of view or main perspectives. This is, I think, precisely why, because of the, the, the when Muslim scholars wrote about Mubahala, they warned that Mubahala is something very serious because it is taking God's name and it should never be done lightly. It can only be done about the most grievous and serious of issues. And furthermore, what I find very interesting is that every, everyone that I've looked at who's written about it says that it can never be a first resort, that it must be preceded by iqamat al-hijjah wa as-sa'i fi izalat al-shubha wa taqdeem al-nusq wa al-inzar. In other words, you must first do everything to advocate, to teach, to... Uh, so in other words, it's, you just don't use it willy-nilly as, um, you know, I'm just going to go in and start. Uh, and it's 
what interests me is actually to say, in light of this Quranic um, statement about Mubahala, to say, well, you know, it, it, it cannot be a first resort and it must be preceded by advocacy and discussions and arguments and so on, to me is an indication of the civilizational maturity of the interpreters of the Quran in previous centuries. Because I have a very strong feeling that if the Quran was being interpreted anew in this day and age, Muslims would read this and would say, oh, okay, so this is what we, have, we should do. After all, it says, فَمَنْ حَجَّكَ مِنْ بَعْدْ You know, whoever debates with you after Allah has clarified the true story about Jesus and, 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 and his status is you know, so it, it, it seems by, you know, the methodology of Al-Mushbah Al-Muhkam Al-Mutashabih that people use. Well, you read this and say, oh, that, that sounds to me like pretty muhkam. It has a clear meaning. But this is actually a very good example of a non-muhkam. Because it is, it is not core. It is not one of the central foundational issues. It is a branch. Okay. And to underscore this, after the Quran mentions al-mubahana, In, in underscoring that Allah and Allah is testifying that this is the absolute truth about Isa. This is the this is the true story about Isa, and this is in sixty-two. But notice in sixty-four. Oh, I, um, I should say something about 62. I was going to forget it. In the tradition, there is a interesting narrative about 62, verse 62, that um, people like um, Abdullah ibn Saifa, ibn Saifa, Wadi bin Zayd, uh, Harth ibn Auf and people like that that these fellows they were all Jewish and but it wasn't just Jewish but there were also some of of what we describe as the Munafiqun but but these three were Jewish and some others who um, started doing something very uh, interesting. Um, um, they would um, convert to Islam and then after Uhud 
they left Islam and cited a whole set of reasons, among them the, the results in the Battle of Uhud. But the phenomena, we're going to talk about those who left Islam after the Battle of Uhud a bit later, but the, the phenomena that is described in the, in the tradition were people like Abdullah ibn Saifa who apparently intentionally would convert and then say, after we've become Muslim, we got closer to Muslims and our hearts became full of doubt and so we left. And they would do this intentionally to sow doubt in the hearts of Muslims. As, you know, because of course the, the natural reaction is that you would go to these people and say, why are you leaving? You know, we used to come to prayer and you, why did you stop coming to prayer? And they would say, well, okay, here are all the problems we have. And, you know, of course, uh, some in, in the Tafasir works especially, they say that this is the occasion for a revelation of verse um, 12. Well, it's actually often reported was verse 72, and a minority reports that says it's everything from 62 to 72. Uh, if he, well, let, let's skip ahead for a, a little bit. Look at 72. وَقَالَتْ طَائِفَةٌ مِنْ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ آمِنُوا بِالَّذِي أُنْزِلَ عَلَى الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَجْهَ النَّهَارِ وَكْفُرُوا آخِرَهُ لَعَلَّهُمْ يَرْجُعُونَ So that some of them said, believe part of the day, and this is uh, allegorical, because it's not that they would believe part of the day and then go back at night. It is that they would believe for days and then go back. Anyway, the, 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 whether it was an occasion for revelation, in 72, it's clear that the Quran is referring to a phenomenon, right? But this phenomenon seems to have been from the time that the Prophet ﷺ arrived in Medina that there were people who would intentionally pretend to become Muslim and then leave Islam and then have a diwaniya, have a, 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 you know, have a major social event where they start telling people why they left Islam. And couple of things, you know, it's very striking about this, and if we ever do the Sira Halakhas, we, we could talk about this at much greater length. But notice, I've always been struck by, okay, so these people would become Muslim, and we have reports of a large number who, who apparently did this, Jews and non-Jews. And then have meetings where they would start talking to people about, you know, you would expect that the response to this would be by force. 
that Muslims would send in the, their armed troops to break up the meeting. Or that Muslims would send armed troops to break up the meeting and arrest these people. Imprison these people. Execute these people. But none of that happened. You can't just pass over it. And if we talk, uh, you know, if we if we do the Sira Halakas, whatever Allah wills, there is much more in terms of details that we can we can talk about because the, the names and there are many narratives that I, w- I would love to share and many details that you, you just get left out in in so many so much of in every of the mo- all the modern histories that have been written. Um, so that that's part of it. The other is. Look at the the beginning of Surah Al-Umran anchors you in the party that claims to be with God. The party that truly surrenders to Allah Malik Al-Mulk, Allah, the true Lord of all. Well, those who are not clear about their faith, they haven't surrendered will be influenced by nonsense like that. This is like the Muslims of today who get influenced by Islamophobia or get influenced because of the so-called, you know, former Muslims who form alliances and, you know, take out billboards and say we're proud to have left Islam and so on. SubhanAllah, Allah is, is alerting you what is your face? Is it based on what the, what the your impressions of the other, or is it based on a genuine, true relationship with Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala? Because if your face is based on a real relationship with Allah, nothing affects it. It 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 nothing. I mean, it doesn't matter who does what, who says what. You have the true, genuine experience, and that's all that matters. If it is borderline, then yes, you are affected by, you know, this opinion, by this event, by this defeat, by this victory, by this up, this down. You're like a a, a seesaw, you know, you go back and forth. Okay. And notice that after in sixty one the the Quran mentions in Mubahala, but it doesn't stop there. This is sort of the, the sophistication and the nuance of the text. So, 64. قُلْ يَا أَهْلِ الْكُتَابِ قُلْ يَا أَهْلَ الْكُتَابِ تَعَالُوا إِلَى كَلِمَةٍ سُوَاءٍ بَيْنَنَا وَبَيْنَكُمْ أَلَّا نَعْبُدَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ وَلَا نُشْرِكَ بِهِ شَيْئًا وَلَا يَتَّخِذَ بَعْضُنَا بَعْضًا أَرْبَابًا مِنْ دُونِ اللَّهِ فَإِنْ تَوَلَّوْا فَقُلْ 
اشهدوا بأننا مسلمون. So Mubahala is not a divorce. This is what, what, what lent Muslims their civilization or sophistication. Mubahala is not a divorce. Even after the Mubahala, there is a point of nuance that you are coming to the people of the book and you are saying, listen, there is a fundamental ethic here. A fundamental, foundational, muhkam principle is that a human being should not take another human being as arbab. If only Muslims paid attention to just even this one verse that let's reach, if you say like, let's reach a consensus, let's reach an agreement between us. Let, let's work it out. On what basis? On the basis that the Father, in the Bible calls, is called the Father, the Father, the Lord, like Jesus repeatedly says, you know, my Father who is in heavens, knows what I don't know. The, my Father who's in heavens decides what I cannot decide and so on. That this is the single and one Lord. And that a human being should not take another human being as their Lord. And if they turn away, then say, bear witness that we are Muslim. We've, we are the, those who surrendered. As so many commentators have noted, what this clearly means that Muslims do not take one another as Arbaib. That when it comes to Muslims, Muslims do not treat one another as you are a god or a semi-god or godlike. Again, I've, I keep, I've emphasized this in the past and, I, and I'm going to emphasize it again. Reading this text with our modern minds, we easily can overlook how revolutionary this was in the historical context in which it was revealed. I mean, I believe it continues to be revolutionary because you go to so many countries, even when Muslim countries are, are replete with, with the, the, the classism and the elitism and the racism of people who completely have ignored this moral lesson. You know, when, when you go to a, 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 a country like Egypt and you find the poor referring to the rich as Basha, and you, 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 you just, they, they talk effusely about someone who's powerful or someone who's rich, 
or someone in the military. Or you go to a lot of the Gulf countries and you see the elitism and arrogance by which a Saudi or a Kuwaiti or a Bahraini would treat uh, someone in their employment as if they belong to different races of human beings. Or, I mean, this, this is an absolute moral obliviousness to we understand the fundament and when I've said that the morality that in the Quran is the moral basis for the rejection of slavery itself it's this yeah in some context a slave could be more like a servant so it's legally defined as a slavery relationship but substantive but that is a rare exception and especially a rare exception as economic and social structures transformed from traditional households where you know you could have the sons and daughters and then the, the an army of people that the family takes care of who are you know people who've lost their parents in wars people who lost their parents in journeys people who uh, don't no one knows who their parents are i mean in some traditional areas you still find that there's some places in egypt for instance in the Said where you find the, the patriarch of the family literally has, you know, 10 sons and daughters and then has 30 kids that they've raised who were otherwise would have ended up being the, the homeless and the... And till today, the status of a lot of these kids are legally, or at least not, not by uh, the law of the state, because the laws of state slavery was abolished. But they call themselves slaves. And if you tell them, do you want your freedom, till now, they say, no, we don't. But modern life, since the Industrial Revolution, has meant that this would be exceedingly the rare exception. And sort of, the very institutional institution of slavery is one of master and a subservient person and an exploitative institution and when Allah anchors this principle it is a principle of dignity and a principle of equality and a principle of self-perception and perception of the others and it is not simply a matter of whether you technically call Jesus divine or not divine but transcends far beyond that proof of that I'll show you that proof of that is the Prophet sitting amongst Muslims who are responsible for 
immediate, for not just in a battle lost, but for major injuries to the Prophet. The Prophet got injured in this battle and got injured in a way that left permanent marks on his face. Right? I mean, in our modern age, tell me what, you're, what is going to happen if someone causes you to be injured and leaves a scar on your face. But yet, when the Quran comes and tells the Prophet, consult with them. If that doesn't tell you what does not taking each other as Arbab mean in Islam, I don't know what will. It, it demands even after the debacle of Uhud, Al-Mushawara, and demands that the Prophet is not Fazl and Ghaliz, is not harsh with them. If the Prophet, and I'll tell you the story of Uhud in, in a bit, I don't know if we'll get to it today, but anyway, that no one would blame him if he became very harsh after the Battle of Uhud because what, what unfolded, there are aspects of the story that are truly shocking. an entire moral education. That is the muhkam. That is the muhkam in Al-Umran. The moral anchoring, the moral education. It's saying pay attention to the, this entire evolving, this entire lesson from beginning to end. And that's why it's the second longest surah in the Quran. Okay. Of course, then the point that Allah underscores part of the polemics were not just people pretending to convert to Islam, but parts of the ongoing polemics, and if you do, you see how from the Quran itself you start getting a picture of life in Medina, very different than the way modern Sira books are written. You know, modern Sira books often read like there is a hijra, they all come together, they all sing Tala al Badru alayna min saniyat al wada, and then, you know, Ansar and Muhajireen kiss each other and hug, and then they live happily ever after. Well, the truth is, there were many ups and downs, there were much turbulence, there was a lot of dynamic. Dynamic activity, economic, social, political at every level. Part of so part is going on is not just those who are pretending to convert to Islam and then go back and then you know even compose poetry about why they left Islam. And some of this poetry survived, by the way. But also. Jews and Christians are going around 
telling Muslims what you don't have a right to talk about Ibrahim. Ibrahim is ours. We know who Ibrahim was. Why is this so important? Because notice this house in Becca or Mecca in in old old Arabic. The the meme and bat were often re, uh, could be replaced. You could either say meme or bat. Like today, for instance, when modern Arabs say ja or ga. Yeah. So in, in this house in Becca or Mecca, well, if as Muslims say that this house and as the Bible sort of alludes to, and we've talked, we've read that reverence, reference, that Ismail and Ibrahim alayhum salam established this house. Well, that house is older than the Temple of Jerusalem. And then it is the original foundational house of monotheism. And the house in Jerusalem is an affirmation of the monotheism of the house in Mecca. But this, of course, was something that both Christians and Jews understood the connotation of that fully well and understood that this would anchor Muslims in sort of the original rooted message of monotheism. So they started saying, especially the among the, the Israelites where we have most of the reports, is that it is Ismail there was there was no special relationship between Ibrahim and Ismail. Some of the, even the poetry seemed to say that claim that which was uh, I mean rather odd that Ibrahim disowned Ismail. This is some of the poetry that was reported to us from that period. And so by saying so, then the entire Arab line and the entire Mecca line and the entire thing that would say that prophecy is not just in the single line of Ishaq and Ismail would be defeated. And the Quran comes in and, and sort of engages these polemics and again, in engaging, in refuting the polemics, you always think of the alternative. The alternative was to reflex your muscles and try to solve the problem using swords and prison or beatings or whatever, instead of responding to a point with a counterpoint. And the Quran responds by saying, you think you're entitled to Ibrahim, but... Ibrahim was not a Jew, and it's an obvious point. Ibrahim was not a Jew or a Christian. 
And Ibrahim was Hanif, was a, a, in essence, a person who surrendered to God, a Muslim. And, and so on. إن أولى الناس بإبراهيم الذين اتبعوه وهذا النبي والذين آمنوا والله ولي المؤمنين This is 68 Notice 69 These little nuances count ود الطائفة من أهل الكتاب لو يضلونكم وما يضلون إلا أنفسهم وما يشعرون Notice the Quran, the, the Quran when it often talks about the wrongdoing of others, it it is like saying, you know, when when you when they teach you in college, don't overclaim, don't say. You know, say many people believe, or some people believe. What the ta'ifatun? It's like saying some of the people of the book want what? Want to lead you astray. Well, as Razi points out, well, the clear implication of this is that there is other, there are others of people who don't want to lead you astray. So be nuanced, be moral. A, a, a divine book that doesn't encourage you to make sweeping generalizations. Again, if you, if you read enough historical literature, this would blow your mind. Because that takes human beings, the whole, I mean, my God, transformations and revolutions and traumas and you know the doctrine of this and the doctrine of that to develop the the nuance of not generalizing and yet you find it in the Quran and Muslims often don't notice it they're so used to it that they don't notice it Then uh, we've talked about 72. وقال الطائفة من أهل الكتاب آمنوا بالذي أنزل على الذين آمنوا وجه النهار. This is the, the polemics of that we talked about. Oh, okay. okay, now let's go. Yeah. So look. 75 ومن اهل الكتاب من ان تامنه بقنطار يؤديه اليك ومنهم من ان تامنه بدينار لا يؤديه اليك الا ما دمت عليه قائما ذلك بانهم قالوا ليس علينا في الاميين سبيل ويقولون على الله الكذب وهم يعلمون بلى من اوفى بعهده واتقى فان الله يحب المتقين And uh, 77, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يَشْتَرُونَ بِعَهْدِ اللَّهِ وَإِمَانِهِمْ ثَمَنًا قَلِيلًا أُولَئِكَ الْأَخْلَاقَ لَهُمْ فِي الْآخِرَةِ وَلَيْكُلِّمُوا اللَّهُ وَلَا نَنْظُرُ إِلَيْهِمْ يَوْمُ الْقِيَامِ 
This is seventy something. Okay, so you notice in seventy five, all of this is unpacking the ethics of this group. Or the fi'a that is with Allah against falsehood. Now, and it presents you with another nuance that says, well, there are some of the people of the book who you can trust with something large, a, 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 a lot of wealth, kantar, a whole uh, large amount. And, but some of them, even if it is a small amount as, as a dinar, you can't trust them with it. Now, again, the, the how unusual it is that you're not telling Muslims you you're not telling Muslims you know just don't trust them. You're telling them well some of them are trustworthy and some of them are not. But the rational and 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 the nuance here matters and matters a lot because it says some of them will not give you back your dinar that small amount, unless you unrelentingly pursue them. The moral implication is that it is not ethical to fail to give a person their due unless they're after you. So what I've encountered in even in legal practice, you know, with some Muslim clients, and I've said in the past that, you know, I, I've unfortunately developed the habit of telling Muslim clients you have to pay in advance. You know, constantly calling them and being after them, pay me, pay me, pay me what you, you owe me. It's precisely what the Quran describes. So it, it is the image of what is wrong. But then the other thing is that and again the nuance, not all Al-Kitab, but what some of the Al-Kitab said some opinions in Jewish law said, particularly, that normal rules of morality don't apply when it comes to those who are different in faith than us. So, while normally it is not lawful to you know, um, cheat or be dishonest with a co-religionist when it comes to someone who's different from in religion than your own. 
it is halal to uh, defraud them. That, that means Ummiyin are people who are of different religion than us. And you say, well, you know, and the Quran comes and as 76 makes clear, says this is morally, this is wrong. The Ahad and the Mithaq is the Ahad and Mithaq. So in other words, you can't say that, well, this is normally haram, but it's okay because it's someone different in, in faith. Remember, everything said in Ali Amran about Ali Kitab is also intended as a warning to Muslims. One of the things I learned when I came to the U.S., among, unfortunately, a lot of my co-religionists, a lot of Muslims that I've encountered in the in the U.S., is the belief that it's okay to cheat. You know, I, I knew a, a guy who was actually quite quote-unquote religious. I mean, he prayed, he, he talked about God all the time. Um, but he felt completely at liberty to steal phone numbers which he charged his international calls back home to these phone numbers. And he used to offer me these phone numbers, saying, oh, you know, don't pay for international calls. I'll give you phone numbers that are stolen phone numbers that just charge them to these phone numbers. And I would tell him, isn't this haram? I'd say, no, no, they, 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 these are kafirs. You know, it's okay. I've also had a lot of Muslims who did this with credit cards. You know, and the idea... Or I've actually known another guy who was, wouldn't miss a prayer and, you know, was constantly, had a big mark on his forehead from prayer and everything. But the, the man had married and divorced three women and each woman he stole her money from her bank account, her car, her, you know, just wiped her clean. And in Every, each one of them, their whole logic was, oh, well, they're not Muslim, so it's okay. You know, it's, it's not. Subhanallah, the Quran clearly condemns this type of morality. This type of double standard, this type of immorality. And somehow, the followers of this book, at least Muslims, the Muslims that I'm talking about, the Muslims I've encountered, and unfortunately it's more widespread than I wanted to believe, somehow end up repeating the same precise sin. Remarkably, the Prophet ﷺ when he is asked about verse 75 and 76, he said, إِنَّ الْأَمَانَةَ تُؤَدَّ إِلَىٰ كُلِّ بَارٍ وَفَاجِرٍ When it comes to amana, something you're trusted with, 
which means, of course, all forms of stealing and cheating. It is absolutely an obligation with every pious and impious person. The impiety or the lack of belief of others can never excuse cheating or lying or stealing. In another hadith, the Prophet ﷺ again commenting on, on 75, has been widely reported. Um, it says, إن أراد الله أن يهلك عبدا نزع منه الحياة حتى تلقاه مقيطا ممقتا حتى تنزع منه الأمانة فإذا نزعت منه الأمانة لم تلقاه إلا خائنا مخونا That first it, The hadith is much longer than this but it's sort of paraphrasing short version That when uh, when Allah is angry at someone, it starts out with al hayat with a sense of hayat is you know a sense of shame or embarrassment about doing what's wrong. And first, what goes is you become forward and. Um, uh, um, brash about doing what's wrong. It's like, so what? You know? And to the point that when you meet the, the, this person's, their psychology, their, their very aura changes until you find this person maqita mumqita a, a person that has become so brass that makes you if if you are among those who've turned your gaze towards god and surrender who makes you feel uncomfortable sort of eerie they're disliked and they dislike others. They're hated and they hate others. In other words, this person becomes full of grievances against other human beings. If you sit with them, all they do is whine and complain about other people. In a nutshell, that's what it is. And they, they don't fill you with peace or, or tranquility. They fill you with anxiety because they're constantly um, irritated, annoyed, whatever. And that, then the worst stage, the Prophet explains, is that the stage where the sense of honesty about truth and about amana, about trust, is taken away. So you can, now, can this happen while you are praying and fasting and doing, absolutely it can. If your fasting doesn't penetrate beyond, if your praying doesn't penetrate beyond the movements you make, 
you can absolutely that's why it is ethics is is a critical yardstick you can you can interrogate yourself about whether you have haya or not whether you become a person who sort of prides themselves on being without shame you can interrogate yourself as to whether you are full of grievances and you're constantly irritated and annoyed and judgmental about other people you know every time you start talking you complain about other people and you can interrogate yourself about whether you are a very honest person about your obligations about your commitments about what you're trusted with your job your everything that people entrust you with are you honest and if you find that you are lacking then you can recognize that your prayers are not as meaningful as they should be it's not the other way around it's not that you start saying well you know are my prayers meaningful and then let's you know let's worry about my ethical character later it is you examine your ethical character if your ethical character is lacking then go back to your ibadah because your ibadah has to be lacking regardless of what you might think or what people might tell you i've known people who would pray every prayer in the mosque actually i, I several people too many people who pray every prayer in the mosque back when i lived in kuwait there was a guy who every salah even fajr in the mosque but would often not pay his workers their salaries they he would withhold their salaries for because he wanted to go on a trip to cyprus for fun or take his family to Europe uh, he would not pay his people who worked for him in two three four in some cases it went as long as six months without uh, prayer and if anyone complained they would promptly get them deported the same guy if If he, I, I, several lawyers that he hired, he drove them crazy for years before he paid what he owed them, and 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 often it was after threats, and in one lawyer he never didn't paid. This person would examine his prayer and probably say, "I'm fine, you know, I don't miss a prayer in the masjid." But it is his moral, his ethics, his conduct, that should inform his assessment of his prayers. It works the other way. This is not a minor point, people, because this is a point so often missed by modern Muslims. 
in fact, we are not raised to think that way, and this is that's that's part of the entire disaster, is that we're not raised to think that way. I want to note that we look at verse seventy-seven. Inna al-ladina ashtaruna bi'ahdillah wa imanihim thamanan qalila. Um, there is a narrative about 77 that those who take their their oath and their commitment with God lightly is some of the narrative say that this verse was revealed when a man in Medina um, um, would often in buying and selling, he was a wealthy merchant in Medina, he would constantly swear about his merchandise. And that people knew that a lot of times when he's swearing about how much uh, stock he has, he would swear about how much he paid for material that he imported, that he's offering in the market, or uh, swear about the origins of material that he's selling. Oh, this came from India. You know, it could have come from Yemen. Uh, he, he would be lying. And that uh, then, as you see in 77, that he's described, or that the, 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 the judgment about us, that لا يكلمهم الله ولا ينظر إليهم ولا يذكيهم ولهم عذاب أليم that those people, it's, they're completely shunned by God. And so, What's interesting about this narrative is that the, the reports, there, you know, there with variations, but anyway, is a Muslim guy that prayed and everything, but yet the Quran comes and says, now again, I don't believe that this was the occasion for revelation. I believe that later Muslims clearly saw that this ayah applied to this man, and they said so, you know. Oh, this is this is a clear. This man is a clear example of what seventy-seven was talking about, and we do have, in fact, narratives that this man, for instance, um, uh, became was much later uh, than this verse was revealed. That he was around in Medina in the eighth century Hijra and and so on, um, rather than be, it being an occasion for revelation. But nevertheless, it is significant that early Muslims of the Sahaba clearly recognized that someone who is swearing up and down about lies and justifying them that their business needs is someone who's completely an example of someone who's going to be completely shunned by God. Although this guy according to these reports, you know, would pray with them in the mosque, etc., etc. Look at 78, 
the only thing I need to tell you about 78 is that among the polemics, and again, you know, it's up to Allah whether we'll be able to do the seerah or not, but uh, among the polemics that occurred in Medina was that some of the detractors of the Prophet um including especially particular poets from Jew the Jewish tribes in Medina would compose verses that would mimic and mock the Quran. Um, so, there are two transmissions about this. Some transmissions said that this is referring to them corrupting their own books, the, the Injil and Bible, the, 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 the Injil and Torah. Second opinion said, no, it's referring to their attempt, they're mocking the Quran by composing things that sound like the Quran or mimicking the Quran, but it is not the Quran. Um, I tend to side with the second school, that this is a ref, not a reference to the corruption of their own books, but the either the purposeful attempt at corrupting the Quran or the mocking of the Quran, um, and which, and again, I mean, it, it's it, when you look at the details. It, what strikes you is um, the amount, the sheer amount of challenges. I mean, you have people that are going around and saying, well, you know, okay, we, we can compose, why don't we try to compose ayat and circulate them? That, um, and, and so that they sound like they're, they're a part of the Quran. And The Prophet ﷺ is repeatedly weeding out, because we have many narratives about this. The Prophet ﷺ is repeatedly, and, and those who had memorized the Quran in total, which were not all the companions, obviously. But the, and my major function of the Quran was, were to constantly weed out attempts at subversions. That, by the way, that style of either uh, corrupting manuscripts by inserting writing in an already existing manuscript, or tricks where you erase writing and write, produce new writing on a manuscript, or inventing verses and injecting them into an existing um, composition were all devices that were in very wide use in the medieval 
world, all around the world. In the age before computers and before archives and before, this was a major way that people expressed themselves, yes, in devious ways, yes, in dishonest ways, but nevertheless, it was a major way that you did things. You change the, the narrative so that the narrative can accommodate whatever your demands are, whatever your desires are, whatever your interests are. And especially about among groups that felt disempowered. So we, one of the major things in, in the, when you work with manuscripts, and, and interestingly, the Islamic world got to be quite sophisticated about methodologies in preserving the integrity of manuscripts. Um, but one of the major things you do as an editor of manuscripts, when, when you work with manuscripts, is figuring out what is the original manuscript and what are corruptions to the manuscript. And the more important the manuscript, so I mean, if it's, you know, this is the, the you know, 20th surviving copy of Sharh al-Muhtaj by Sherbini. Uh, it, it, that it's easier, much much easier, to, much easier to weed out the corruptions. But if it is one of the two surviving copies of an um by Shafi, then your job is very different. And figuring out, and and sometimes you need to do you know use modern science to try to look at ink and you know and but you'd be surprised. Um, this 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 methodology of of you'd be surprised how how often this was and how widespread this was. Um, okay. Seventy nine is which will let's make it the 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 last area that we deal with today. Tuesday night anyway. So the first part is clear enough that a reference back or this in this constant theme since the story of the career that a, a prophet that would not tell people worship me um But this Quranic expression, Kunu Rabbaniyun, 
because a great deal of amount or sorry a great deal is written in the Islamic tradition about a Rabbani that what a prophet teaches is not to worship me as a messenger but to be a godly human being and there is an entire discourse I've written, I've published some material on this about the whole idea of the, the idea that how do you mold your ethics so that you are a godly human being. And for people like Ibn Arabi, Ibn Arabi for instance, or Jilani in his tafsir, says there are you know there are people who are aware that their main mission in life is to elevate to to pursue the path of godliness rabbaniya as but the 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 essence of being rabbani is it never involves a claim of authority of prestige. In fact, Jilani has a very nice passage about how a Rabbani, the more Rabbani you become, the more self-effacing you become, and the more you your, your sense of self-importance is... Um, Interestingly, there is a hadith in which the Prophet is asked about verse 79, and the Prophet comments about something that I, I always thought, or at least in the, in the report, says that the, uh, what the Prophet's response is, is, has always struck me as very interesting. Um, because he, he says, when he's asked about this being Abd Rabbani, and then he says, مَا مِنْ ذَكَرٍ وَلَا أُنْثَى حُرٍّ وَلَا مَمْلُوكٍ إِلَّا لِلَّهِ عَلَيْهِ حَقٍّ أَنْ يَتَعَلَّمِ الْقُرْآنِ وَيَتَفَقَّهْ فِي دِينِهِ so what he what he comments on is he says there is no human being male or female slave or free except that he has the right to learn the quran and 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 comes from the word fuck right to to learn his or her religion So the, the the this tradition and its variants, it's slight variations, but it's it's basically the, the, the core is always the same. Is 
a right to education, right? And a right to education in the Quran, and which then Muslim commentators, Muslim theologians, and and jurists have have these interesting discussions of well, does this include the right of lit literacy? So is it learn the Quran? Does it mean to learn it memorization? or learn it in literacy. And the vast majority said it includes the right of literacy. Now, if you know something about the history of slavery in the West, you know that one of the big things, especially in the United States, in slavery was that you, you keep slaves illiterate. Um, which, uh, very in, and, and by the way, in, in Roman law, similarly, um, slaves, it was a capital punishment for a slave to learn, to read or write. Uh, an interesting contrast with Islamic law, where actually slaves has, has a right to literacy. Um, and it originated from this. That, that's where the genesis of that juristic debate uh, or juristic doctrine comes from. But, Kuno Rabbaniyin. It is not an exaggeration to say that the entire project of the Quran is educating human beings on how to be Abd Rabbani, a godly human being. And when you pose even this, you know, question with an obvious answer, if you have a fi'ah that claims to be with Allah struggling against those who are not with Allah. Is it necessary for that fi'ah that it be a fi'ah rabbaniya, a godly fi'ah? And I think most people, the answer is absolutely, it's necessary that it be a godly fi'ah. And so, that then begs the question, of course, all the moral and ethical characteristics that is required of a human being to rise to that level of the claim, of, I aspire to be a godly human being. It's a complete paradigm shift, right? Because a godly human being is not petty. A godly human being is not egotistical. A godly human being is not insecure. Is not uh, all this, all the the, the 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 character personality flaws that we would then be invited to fight within ourselves to rise to that standard or to aspire to that standard and a godly human being would never claim to be godly you would never say yeah i am godly it's a contradiction in terms right the minute you claim it you're not that is the muhkam see when the Quran anchors you in this, it's anchoring, anchoring you in the muhkam, ummu kitab, 
Al-Umran is the entire surah is the unfolding of example after example of the muhkam of Umm kitab Okay, let's stop here for tonight. What time is it? Oh, okay. So we are at verse 80. Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Oh my God. Um, oh, what do you even say? I think that every time by the end of the session, when you feel like you're completely um, just submerged, I don't even know what the right word is, but just, you know, burdened in the most, I guess, um, beautiful and blessed way because you've just heard even just a portion of the symphony is um, truly amazing. So. Um, just to share some of the highlights as I was taking notes, um, just for future summary. summary. Um, so as, as part of the recap, like, you know, who do you love and are you on, basically um, in the party of God or, or not? Um, I think the, the, the giving us the reason for the story of the family of Imran was just like, you know, mic drop, um, as you said, that this is not something that you would find in the tafsir, but to understand that you have this group of very deeply pious people and it looks from basically all measures that they you know, are defeated. They live a short life, they're extremely pious, um, very tragic things happen, but that they would never have imagined that this is a victory because God is the real king and God gives victory um, and defeat and look at, you know, something very, these small events as you describe them taking place led to something tremendous. Um, I think that the, um, the Bible stories are always so powerful comparing the Quranic versus the biblical and seeing how um, God is um, portrayed in, as a punisher in the Bible, um, much more so than, you know, where the, the Quranic take is human beings have um, a commitment and are given the, the ability to, to demonstrate their commitment through their voluntary efforts. Um, that, interestingly, that, you know, Jesus, the success of Jesus was was quite small relative, you know, that, that it was limited to his companions and a handful of people. Um, and honestly, I, you know, forgive me for saying this, but I hope that even like the efforts here of learning this Quran, even if it's just a small group of people in Ohio, maybe, you know, the, like when you hear these stories and you pulling everything together, um, I, you know, inshallah, I pray that more people will will come to, to understand and learn from here. Um, and being, um, being clear on your relationship with God, you know, what is your faith based on? Is it based on the opinions of other people or is it based on your real relationship with God? Um, and just the revolutionary nature, again, reminding us of, you know, even though these things we can hear as we're sitting here in a halakha, um, to us, they're not necessarily that revolutionary, but to remind us of 
at the time these messages were coming forward, um, how revolutionary they are, for example, not surrendering to human beings um, and um, not generalizing and like the nuance of understanding different types of people and understating like some people will be of the type that will not return um, you know, money unless you stand over them versus some who will return it right away and just that, um, that lesson and underscoring that everything that is being covered is a warning to Muslims um, and not to take those same paths. So it's very um, humbling to see that, you know, Muslims unfortunately have not followed that um, very closely, that it is about ethics and not about ritual or prayer and walking us through the steps of um, the displeasure or anger of God. So, um, and the importance of examining your ethical character. So starting out with a lack of shame or being brash about something that you've done wrong. Um, then step two, being full of anxiety or grievances about others that you're just, you know, the type of personality that likes to sit and complain. And then lastly, losing a sense of honesty about the truth and that all of that can take place even while you're actively praying and fasting and, and performing rituals. Um, and I think that even the idea of the, just all of the challenges that the prophet faced, um, when you were highlighting how people were actively trying to change the narrative or insert false, false verses, and even like the idea that, that the prophet had to be weeding out verses that were inserted. I mean, it's, that just is tremendous. I mean, it's like if you think about the Islamophobia of that, of, the, of that time, what a tremendous amount of effort and what a battle to just um, hang on to the message of truth and, and you know, and. I mean, I think it just is such a window into the challenges of today and, you know, challenges that confront truth seekers and advocates of justice again. Um, and then the beautiful end where you talk about this, um, the more godly you are, the, the aspiration of godliness, um, when the more godly people are, the more self-effacing and how, um, the verse, I didn't write down the number, but you know how it is a right to education, a right to literacy, especially even among slaves, and the, the stark difference between how in the Quran, you, you know, slaves had a right to educate themselves, whereas in Roman law, it was a capital punishment to be literate. Um, and ultimately that this just leads to educating oneself on how to be a godly human being and all that that entails and implies um, and what an incredible paradigm shift that is um, and how all of this just brings us back to um, the umukatab, the, the heart, the, the, you know, the root um, and the trunk of the message in Surah Al-Imran. So um, I know there's so much more and we're only on verse 80, but alhamdulillah, um, truly wonderful and amazing and I'm so grateful for, for all of this. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> thank you for being with us and um, inshallah we will look forward to seeing you guys oh gosh it's Tuesday, Saturday inshallah. So have a wonderful rest of the week and wonderful to be with you. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.